Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, it's good to be back with you for this episode on the book of Job. It's good to hear your voice recording. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation because I love this book. This is my favorite book in the Bible maybe at least in the Hebrew Bible. It may be my favorite book in the Bible. We'll find out when we get to New Testament. <laughs> yeah. It is one of the most beautiful, most powerful poems of the ancient world. It may be the most beautiful poem of the ancient world. I love the Gilgamesh, as I've said before. I really love Job. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. Well, okay, now I say it's a poem. Let's talk about this, Ben. We have, before the poetry of the book begins, we have a frame narrative in prose. And if you're reading from the King James Version, then you don't know any of this. Right, because you can't see the poetry structure and meter and, and verse. So when we read from King James, this is what happens. The book that is that consists, the book of Job, that consists of a frame narrative in prose. So at the beginning and the end, you have prose. And in the middle, a poem shows up in the King James all in prose, but in a high poetic language. And so what that does is that flattens the whole thing. Even though it brings up the level of discourse of the prose to the poetic level, it then flattens the whole thing. And that changes the way that it works, right, on mm -hmm. the reader. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that's really important to notice anytime you're reading literature is if there's a sudden change in the way that it's written. It's like a changing key in music or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So in this case, in the book of Job, we have one of the most, probably the most obvious example of this, because we have this prose at the beginning, the first two chapters, and then we have poetry. And so what this does is it tells us something's, something's going on here, something different. And so how this is typically read by, you know, via King James translation and via, you know, by most Latter-day Saints and many others probably, because we know, we all know the standard interpretation of the the patience of Job, right? Yeah. The patience the of Job. Sure. Everybody knows about the, the patience of Job. And so this is clear evidence that it's being read wrong. And this is one of the most, it's, it's one of the easiest books to, to read wrong. Because if you don't know about what we're talking about here with the, with the frame of the prose and the poem 
and how they, they're juxtaposed to each other. And you just read the beginning and you understand it. It's actually easy to understand the prose. It's very simple. The poem is much more complex in its construction, right? And then the you read the end and you understand that and you think, okay, well, I got the beginning, I got the end. So now I must understand this because we got from the beginning to the end. It's obvious where the middle has to go to get there, right? Yeah, but the middle's the whole point. <laughs> right, then you just missed the whole thing. And the middle is difficult to read. It's much more difficult to read than than the prose at the beginning, even in the King James translation. It's it's sort of, it's hard to follow, right? It's There's just a lot going on. So what makes the, the prose so different from the poetry, other than just one is prose, one is, is poetry, right? One is in verse is that the prose narrative is actually much older. So the book of Job is probably written around 2,500 years ago, around 300 BCE, give or take a couple hundred years. So it's actually being written at the same time as, as other poems in ancient Greece, for example. And there's also some a part of it that's wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, it is in a sense, all of it is, is wisdom literature, but there's a, a particular part of it that's that's wisdom literature. And so... It's, it's a dialogue. And so it's like, a, like like Plato's dialogues, the Socratic dialogues, like some of the best poets that were writing in Greece, you know, Oedipus, you know, by Sophocles, Antigone. There's some commonalities even between the books, you know, between the Book of Job and between those poems from ancient Greece and Medea too. That's another one by Euripides, one of my favorites. And even, you know, this is the time that Shakespeare placed his King Lear in, right? It's, it's, it's placed in a mythic past, and it's this fairy tale, like very simple narrative. You kind of know how it's all going to work out, how it works. And it's the story that people know of the patience of Job. And it has this, this simplicity to it. And it even starts off, it has fairy tale markers, right? It has these markers that make it obvious that, it, that it's a fairy tale. It starts with the Hebrew equivalent of once upon a time. So when you say that this is written in a mythic past, or it's set in a mythic past, you're not talking about the period when you think it was actually written, you know, somewhere around five to 300 BC. No, I'm talking about its setting. The setting is is much older, yeah. but it's, it's sort of an indefinite period of time, right? It's like some, you know, once upon a time, like you were saying. That's what I mean by yeah, mythic past. It, yeah. it doesn't need to be set at any point in time because that's actually kind of the whole point of the book of Job. This is a a story for the ages, you know, so to speak. It's something that is true. It speaks to the experience of humanity no matter when you live. Well, that's what it means to be true, right? We have to sure. distinguish between facts and between truth. You can string together true facts into a false narrative. That's what we call propaganda. Mm-hmm. Or you can take, you know, false facts, right? Fictitious facts and string them together into a narrative that speaks to the human condition, you know, that's to the deepest truths of the human experience. Right. And in a sense, that's, you know, one of the only ways that you can express the truth because you get at like a meta, what we might call a meta truth through that kind of right. process. And so that's what we call great literature. And that's what we're looking at when we look at the book of Job. So the the fairy tale markers that it has, they are not just fairy tale markers, but they're Persian fairy tale markers. So they help us date the book. And then the Satan himself is another Persian-looking figure. He's a court figure. He's not the, how we know Satan, you know, this is Hasatan. It's actually the Satan. So it's a title. Yeah, this is the Satan. That that article is important in this sense because we're talking about not a specific person or a character. We're talking about 
an office or a part. If this is like a play, this is the part that the person is playing. He's playing the Satan, right? So That's right. Yeah, exactly. And and that's uh, the part is to be the accuser, right? Yeah. In a trial. And and actually what the what the Satan does in in this story is he goes around and you can this is actually in the text that he's going around. Where what have you been doing? Well, I've been going around, you know, checking things out. And so that's his job is he's actually a spy. He's going around spying who he needs to tell on, right? Mm-hmm. To the to the divine council, but especially to God. To yeah. the divine council, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's how that works. And so these are these are markers of its, you know, setting. And the other thing about the about the frame narrative versus the poem is why do we have these two things? What happened is we have this older story and there are versions of it. There are versions of it in Ugaritic and in other, you know, Akkadian, I think. There's different versions, just like there are different versions of some of these others, like the flood story, right? That's another example. Uh-huh. And so this is a known story where somebody, you know, a great man, he has all these things, he loses everything, he gets everything back times two or whatever. That's the the frame narrative. So that's a much older story and it's included here such that the poem that then is going to subvert it can make that when we come out of the end of the poem back into the narrative, that it, that we really should read it ironically. The poem is really subverting what the prose is saying. And the prose narrative, by the way, this is really important ben, because it's something we've been talking about for the whole time we've been talking about the Deuteronomistic histories, right? All of those books of the Bible that we've been through recently, ending with what? Chronicles, right? Second Chronicles. And then you've talked about Esther after that with your wife. In a sense, Ezra and Nehemiah are still kind of part of the Deuteronomistic tradition, but, you know, historically speaking, but they might have a little bit later authors. Yeah. So we've been saying that these, what these writers are doing is they're establishing this orthodoxy that means that in order for God to to protect us or to reward us, you know, with the promised land to protect us from the, those surrounding us who are invading. And we talked about the, the bad theology of being in the crosshairs of empire and thinking that if you didn't do everything that God said, or that, you know, all these rules that, the, that they have, that that's why you went into exile. And so that's, that's the narrative, right? And that's the same thing that you get in this prose frame narrative. You get that if you do good things, in the end, God will reward you. But the poem is doing something else, something entirely different. And it's powerful, powerful uh, poetry too. The level of discourse is, is much higher than that of the prose. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit, Ben, about how the poetry works. Do you know how this, how this poetry works? You mean in terms of the, the structure or the, the back and forth between the characters? Uh, no, I mean, so the way that, that Hebrew poetry works is it's not about rhyme and, and meter necessarily the way the way oh, our poetry right, works. Right. Yeah. I understand what you mean. What designates it as poetry as such? Yeah. Yeah. So w- what that looks like is you get a lot of repetition, thematic repetition. Yeah, and I think that might be one of the things that could make it difficult for people to read. They've at a certain point you feel like you're reading the same thing over and over again. You know, it's just like different analogies or metaphors that he uses to describe the same thing over and over again. I actually think that's like part of the effectiveness of it because he's kind of bringing you into the suffering that he's experiencing in some ways. Yeah, no, it really does work on you. And and the thing about poetry is it, it has to be read out loud. Yeah. You know, I remember the first time I read the first verse translation of Job. I have that in front of me. I'm going to read from it. 
and, and have the listener to listen for the repetition of themes, you'll notice them, and to feel how the poem works on you. This is a, a poem, a, a poetic translation of a poem, right? This is in verse. This was done back in 79. There's a second translation in verse. This is Stephen Mitchell. Then you have from 1998, Raymond P. Shenlin made a verse translation. He acknowledged Robert Alter for looking at that and giving him feedback. And, and then we have in 2010, Robert Alter publishes his volume on the wisdom literature. And now he's finished the entire Hebrew Bible. And that's a landmark translation. Robert Alter is, is also a poetic translation. So listen as I read from, from the beginning when, when Job finally cries out after the prose narrative ends at the end of chapter 2. This is beginning chapter 3. He says, God damn the day I was born and the night that forced me from the womb. On that day, let there be darkness. Let it never have been created. Let it sink back into the void. Let chaos overpower it. Let black clouds overwhelm it. Let the sun be plucked from its sky. Let oblivion overshadow it. Let the other days disown it. Let the ions swallow it up. On that night, let no children be born. No mother cry out with joy. Let sorcerers wake the serpent to blast it with the eternal blight. Let its last stars be extinguished. Let it wait in terror for daylight. Let its dawn never arrive, for it did not shut the womb's doors to shelter me from this sorrow. Why couldn't I have died as they pulled me out of the dark? Why were there knees to hold me, breasts to keep me alive? If only I had strangled or drowned on my way to the bitter light, now I would be at rest. I would be sound asleep with kings and lords of the earth who lived in echoing halls, with princes who hoarded silver and filled their cellars with gold. There the troubled are calm, there the exhausted rest, rich and poor alike, there, and the slave lies next to his master. This poetry is sinewy and sensuous, it is muscular and moving, and it deserves to be read out loud. This is a powerful story, and the thing about poetry, right, is it, it doesn't speak to you in propositions. It's not rational thought communicated. It's meant to touch the heart. It's speaking emotion directly to the heart. And so you can feel the power of it. There's one more passage that I want to read as an exemplary passage of the poetry. And, and this is, again, in the Mitchell translation. This is from God's, what did you call it, Ben? He doesn't, he doesn't answer Job, Response. Right? He responds, yeah. right? So this is from God's response. Do you give the horse his strength? Do you clothe his neck with terror? Do you make him leap like a locust, snort like a blast of thunder? He paws and champs at the bit. He exults as he charges into battle. He laughs at the sight of danger. He does not wince from the sword or the arrows nipping at his ears or the flash of spear and javelin. With his hooves, he swallows the ground. He quivers at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet calls, he says, Ah, from far off he smells the battle, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. It's beautiful, Ben. It's, and this is not what it's like to read from the King James. And the King James Bible is beautiful language, right? All of it has a, po a high poetic yeah. value, even though it's not in verse, but it's off flat. And, you, and it's not this, right? It's not this. This is Again, it's just sinewy and sensuous and muscular and just deeply moving. I love it. It's just not trying to be distinct in its poetry from the rest of the thing. So yeah, you don't you don't see that contrast, I guess you could say. 
Yeah. The book of Job, people are probably going to generally be familiar with the story. It's pretty simplistic within the first couple chapters. You have this rich man and Satan comes before God and says- The Satan. Yeah, the Satan. There you go. And the Satan comes before God and God says, what have you been doing? Like you were saying, Christopher, and he's been going around in the earth looking for people to accuse and- And God says, well, there's my servant Job. He is perfect, essentially. And the Satan says, yeah, well, I bet I can get him to curse you. And so basically there becomes this bet, this wager between God and the Satan. And God says, okay, I'll take you up on that. But he sets stipulations. He sets limits to what the Satan can do. And so Satan goes down and basically makes Job lose all of his possessions, everything he has. But God says, you can't touch Job himself. You can just take away everything that he has. So Job sits down and mourns after this, but he doesn't curse God, right? And so God meets up with the Satan again and and says, see, you know, I, I told you. And the Satan says, yeah, but you know, people are okay losing all their stuff. But if it's actual personal physical pain that they experience, that's a whole new experience. It's a whole new ball game, so to speak. And God says, okay, you know, let's go that way. Why don't you go ahead and do that? But you can't kill him. So there's this limit, right? I don't know. There, if, if you know how the story goes, you might chuckle a little bit at that point because the rest of the poem is Job just begging for death, essentially. <laughs> and Well, and, and he's cursing God. Yeah. And at the beginning, you know, in this point, there seems to be the notion that God is setting a limit to what Satan can do, and he's like protecting Job. But what's actually happening is when he says, Satan, you can't kill him, that's actually a greater what you might call cruelty, because now Job can experience suffering beyond what somebody might really tolerate. So anyway, that happens, and Job gets these boils all over his body and it's just extremely painful and he's lost everything and he's just in constant misery day and night. And so he goes through this whole discussion about how unjust God seems to have been because he is an innocent man. He's done nothing wrong and he has friends that come sit with him. It says they sit with him for seven days, right? They're kind of mourning with him. But at the end of the seven days, it seems like they've kind of had enough and they're sick of Job whining, so to speak. <laughs> so they kind of go after him, in each in their turn, having a back and forth with Job and trying to persuade him not to curse God or not to lay the fault at God's feet or not to despair. You know, there's different ways that they kind of approach this problem of Job's suffering. And none of that works for Job. He doesn't accept any explanation for his suffering. Even his own laments don't really help him come to any sort of understanding. Ultimately, what he seems to really want or demand in the situation is an audience with God. He wants to talk to God about what's going on. And the explanations and exhortations of his friends are insufficient. They don't help him in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's interesting to note that when he's asking for an audience with God, 
right? There, there's some legalistic aspects of uh-huh. this text, right? This is a trial. Right. And so reading from the Mitchell translation again. He wants his habeas corpus. <laughs> yeah. Grant me one thing only, and I will not hide from your face. Do not numb me with fear or flood my heart with your terror. Accuse me, I will respond, or let me speak and answer me. What crime have I committed? How have I sinned against you? Why do you hide your face as if I were your enemy? So he's he's actually asking for his, because there's a right, that he has a right in his context, in his time and place. He has a right. And when I say that, I mean, I'm thinking of the the ancient Israelites. They, they've placed him, the, the poet has placed the character Job in a mythical past, right? We said that. And by the way, he's not a Hebrew. Yeah. There are many Aramaisms in the text. Job, I think only one time, the only time that I think that God is called Yahweh is in the frame narrative. And in the poem, Job refers to God as El or Shaddai. So these are these older names for God. And yet, you know, he's an everyman. You know, part part of the idea of putting this in a mythical past is that it's not about a historical character. It's about you. Hmm. It's about what it means to be human. And in the end, you know, spoiler alert, he doesn't, well, I, we already said this, actually. He doesn't get an answer, right? Yeah. God, God resp- responds or replies, but he doesn't actually answer Job. Not his questions. He doesn't, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't give an answer to the questions per se. You know, you were talking about how this is kind of legalistic. Yeah, it's it's like Job, in a sense, has been put in jail and he's sitting there screaming, hey, what you know? What have I done wrong? Why am I in here? And all the other people or the prison guards or the other people in the jail are saying, well, you must have done something wrong. You wouldn't be in here otherwise. And he's saying, no, I haven't done anything wrong. Why am I in here? I, I need a, a trial, right? So I, I kind of, in my mind, I kind of envision this sort of a scenario where he's just, you know, wants his day in court, so to speak, to plead his case or to hear the charges against him, like you said. So we've talked about this frame narrative and the poem in the middle, and you mentioned the friends that come to console Job. It's interesting to note that they, as you pointed out, they don't really do that in the end. In fact, they come and first they say things like, for these things to go wrong, usually that means, you know, somebody had it coming. They're not saying that that Job did. They're just saying, in general, that's how things work. Yeah. Then the next time, the next round, because there are three rounds, they say something like, well, you must have done something wrong, right? Yeah. What is it? Search your heart, you know? Yeah, yeah. Think, think, Job. There's there's something you did wrong. <laughs> yeah, come on. Right. So by the third round, it's you have done all these horrible things, right? And we know from the frame narrative from the beginning that Job was the most perfect man. And the poet, to make this work, this story, this book of Job, Job has to be the most perfect man. He can't be sort of good. He has to be really really good or he can't be delusional like self-deluding right about his right. goodness and he also ha- the punishment has to be really really bad right for this for this to work the yeah. way that it's supposed extremes to extremes so the, in all these so cases. those that's the second part right after you get out of chapter two chapters three through 27 you have this wisdom dialogue it's like i mean i said earlier it's like plato but the difference the big it's it's only like plato in that it's a dialogue right back and forth what it where it's not like plato is it's not leading to an answer the poet poets don't do answers that's that's for philosophers like plato for, for for prose poets raise questions and and they and they they touch your feelings right they they touch your emotions and they make you feel 
Well, Plato's like a guided dialogue. You know, the the idea is he's trying to arrive. He has sort of a predetermined point to arrive to. And and he may, you know, wind through some different places to get there depending on who he's talking with. But you always arrive at that, you know, conclusion. And that's sort of predetermined by the person giving the discussion, Socrates or or whatever. But in this one, it's not like there's some predetermined conclusion you're going to reach. It's simply a dialogue back and forth discussing this. And, and the reader is supposed to sort of come out of it with whatever they think. <laughs> yeah. So that's the second part, the wisdom dialogue, chapters 3 through 27, with the three friends, each in turn, for three rounds going back and forth. And Job, you know, they say something, Job responds, with the significant exception of Zophar, the last friend, not having a third dialogue, right? A third speech. So that the thing gets interrupted there. And then you have this hymn to wisdom. Chapter 28 is a hymn to wisdom. It's like stuff you see in Psalms and Proverbs, maybe Ecclesiastes, right? It's like that. And that's chapter 28. Chapters 29 through 31, Job's final speech. Then comes this speech out of nowhere from a guy named Elihu. He's the only one in the text that has a name that looks Hebrew. And it looks like an interpolation. He sort of, he seems to know everything that God's going to say next in God's response to Job, right? From chapters 38 through 42, at least through verse 6 of chapter 42, the first six verses. That's the last chapter, by the way. Because from verse 7 on, then we get the, the rest of the frame narrative. The, the prose, we go back to prose. So chapter 42, verses 7 through the end, which is 17. So by interpolation with Elihu, what you mean is maybe originally, or not originally, but previously, the form that this poem took maybe didn't have Elihu in it. And whoever took it and adapted it, adapted this story, the prose and the poem for use within a Hebrew context and, and scripture might have, or at some point along the way, might have added this speech of Elihu because he has a Hebrew name and the way that he talks and and the rhetoric he uses is is very different from what we've heard up until this point. Yeah, he seems to be trying to to give this defense of God that and and he again, he seems to know what God's going to say, meaning, Whoever wrote this had already read the next part, right? Where God answers yeah. Job. One of the things we were talking about previously, Christopher, was that it's almost like Elihu was somebody's commentary on the book of Job before Elihu gets at it, right? So somebody reads yeah. the book of Job and they're commenting what they think, like how would they have responded to Job? And so they, they kind of write that down because Elihu is given as almost a middle, middle ground between what Job is saying and then what his friends are saying. And so Elihu comes in and he says, well, yeah, Job, maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but it's okay for God to cause suffering because he's trying to teach you something. And if you'll just learn it, then you'll be a better person. Yeah, you can tell too the difference in my trans in Stephen Mitchell's translation. You know, you can really see. Actually, no, not Stephen Mitchell's. He leaves it out. He actually just left it out. He leaves Elihu out completely. Yeah, but in That's reading other translations, whether Shinelands or the King James version, I think the language is just not at the level of the rest of the of the book. The hymn to wisdom may also be an interpolation, but here's the thing about that. What does that mean? So. 
the book of Job with those interpolations is how we've had it for a couple thousand years. And this is how we think of Job. And we're not saying that it's that it's not valid what is saying what it says there, right? What we're saying is, as, as you've said, Ben, is that the speech of Elihu may be an ancient commentary. And so what this gives us, if we know what it is, it helps us to better read it, right? If we know that there's this prose frame and there's this poem in the middle, then we know the better how to read it. If we know that these are interpolations, we know how to read them better than if we thought they were part of the original. I say original. I mean, again, you have these stories that are maybe 500 years older. It's just context. It helps you know where the particular part came from. You can see maybe what its intention was. And so it helps you understand the narrative as a whole. But yeah, like you were saying, like, it's not like Elihu isn't part of the book of Job. It definitely is part of the book of Job because it's been part of the book of Job for 2000 years. It's been part of the book of Job for a lot longer than it ever was not part of the book of Job. <laughs> yeah. Let me challenge you a little bit and get some more of your thoughts on the, I know that my redeemer liveth thing. You were saying, Christopher, that this isn't necessarily talking about Christ. It's talking about Job in a legal context, asking for an advocate, somebody that will plead his cause to God. Is that correct? Right. So I would say that in our tradition, that is actually how the Christ is portrayed in a lot of scripture as our advocate with the father, you know, with God. And so, you know, in, in one sense, we definitely could look at that and say, well, maybe Maybe it's not what Job is is looking at, but when we look at Job, that's what we see because that's the tradition we're coming from. And that's a totally valid thing for us to see as long as we recognize that the intent of the person who wrote it wasn't necessarily thinking in a Christological manner. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying on the one hand, this isn't Messiah that's being translated as Redeemer, it's Gael. And on the other hand, I'm saying, yeah, it's an advocate. And yes... Jesus is an, an advocate, and yes, Job is looking for an advocate, but he's not looking for Jesus. Hmm. He's looking for a member of his family, and that's the context, right? So, yes. yeah. Another thing that's that stands out for me is at some point, Job is saying, you know, what if I could just, well, let me just read it. He says, even if it is cut down, a tree can return to life. Though its roots decay in the ground and its stump grows old and rotten, it will bud at the scent of water and bloom as if it were young. But man is cut down forever. He dies, and where is he then? The lake is drained of its water, the river becomes a ditch, and man will not rise again while the sky is above the earth. If only you would hide me in the pit till your anger has passed away, then come to me and release me. All my days in prison I would sit and wait for that time. You would call me? I would answer, you would come to me and rejoice, delighting in my smallest step, like a father watching his child. So it's interesting because he actually brings up that he does not believe in a resurrection. And then he says, if only you would hide me in the pit till your anger has passed away, then come and release me. So he's talking about a resurrection, but he already knows that that can't be. And so when I say he already knows that that can't be, and we believe that it can be, what I mean is that the idea of resurrection is not something that Job has in his thinking. So this idea of the of the resurrection actually starts with the Pharisees around the time that this is written and really shows up by the time of Christ. This is something that that becomes distinctive about the Pharisees. Well, you know, that has been developing since the time that Job was written. And then 
becomes the Christian way of thinking about what happens after death. Job's, you know, in, in the time of Job, you have maybe the sense that you would go down to Sheol. This is a bodily experience. This isn't an, an afterlife of the soul. You see stories about people going down to show to visit and come back in, in literature like the like in book 11 of Homer's Odyssey when Odysseus goes down to Sheol or to Hades in, in the Greek to visit his father and then Aeneas in book 6 of the Aeneid does the same thing but no afterlife of the soul so there's just a couple of things that I wanted to point out about you know Christology sort of the, the Christian ideas that are read backwards into Job that I don't think really can be read in that way but then that's that's literally historically right if we're talking religiously if we're talking mystically if we're talking then we're not talking about physical things right and those things are archetypal and they're always true regardless of whether they're historical so we said ben that god does not answer job right yeah and i think i think you know those are answer and respond obviously are you know synonyms but what i mean yeah. by that is he responds, but he doesn't address the specific concern. No, it's not even the specific concern. He doesn't address the specific question that Job has. He does respond to it. He doesn't ignore it. But I would say he doesn't answer the question. He simply responds to Job's... His request to be heard, right? Yeah. He responds to his request, but he doesn't answer his question. His demand. I should say his demand to be heard. There we go. Yeah, so for for the listener who who might be thinking, wait, no, he does, you know, God, he comes and he says something to the that, that adds up to you can't possibly understand, right, my economy, right? And so this seems like an answer, but it's really not because remember that that Job was this innocent man, and that all of these things that have been done to him have been done to him by God. And earlier, you taught—I can't remember who you said was doing this, but I meant to say this earlier, that Job actually looks to God to protect him from God. And God, who makes this bet with the with the, the Satan, right, the Hasatan, in the frame narrative of the first two chapters, who just poofs and disappears completely after that, just like Elihu's never heard of before he speaks up. He says, you know, I've been here listening to this conversation, but nobody noticed him. I didn't notice him. Job's friends didn't notice him. He just comes out of nowhere. That's part of the reason why it looks like an interpolation. But, you know, what we get in the end is that God says, you know, kind of like, I know everything. Perfect wisdom is mine. So here's Job. Job already knew that. That's why we're saying he doesn't really get an answer. That is not something he didn't already know because we read early in the book of Job. Stephen Mitchell doesn't have actually have chapters or verses, but this is in the it's in the first round of speeches when Job is answering to the first speech of Zophar, the last of the three friends. You, it seems, know everything. Perfect wisdom is yours. But I am not an idiot. Who does not know such things? Even the animals will tell you and the birds in the sky will teach you. Any plant will instruct you. Go learn from the fish in the sea. Which of them does not know that God created all things? In his hand is the soul of all beings and the spirit of every man. So Job already knows this, right? Later on, God comes and says, hey, I created everything. Where were you? Remember the, the passage I read about the horses? You know, did you do that? No, I did that. But that doesn't really answer Job's question. And so, But what's significant, what's really powerful here is he wants an experience of God and he gets it. 
He wants his audience, right? He wants to be heard. There's that. There's the friends who mourn. We just have a few, a few things to talk about here, Ben, right? The friends who mourn and how they get it right at first and then they get it wrong because they're willing to put their ideology ahead of their friendship, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. And there's another sense in which Job hasn't been answered. And I wanted to share some passages from, from the memoir of a Holocaust survivor, right? From an, a, a Nazi death camp survivor, Elie Wiesel in his book, Night, the questions stand, right? These questions didn't go away. They they apply today, and they certainly applied in Elie Wiesel's experience. He writes in Night, Evenings, as we lay on our cots, we sometimes tried to sing a few Hasidic melodies. A kima drummer would break our hearts with his deep, grave voice. Some of the men spoke of God, his mysterious ways, the sins of the Jewish people, and the redemption to come. As for me, I had ceased to pray. I concurred with Job. I was not denying his existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. And so he's having the same experience in this Nazi death camp as Job, right? That he just does not think God is just. Yes, he believes there's a God, but that this God is not just. And then what happens next? Akima Drummer said, this is one of his friends in the death camp who sounds just like Job's friends. God is testing us. He wants to see whether we're capable of overcoming our base instincts, of killing the Satan within ourselves. We have no right to despair, and if he punishes us mercilessly, it is a sign that he loves us that much more. Which is absurd, right? But this is the this is the frame narrative. This is the simple, you know, the once upon a time, the, the story begins once upon a time, the Hebrew equivalent. It tells this fairy tale. In the end, Job gets everything back times two. Uh, never mind, you know, his entire family, all of his children were killed so that God could win a bet with the accuser, right? Hmm. And and he has these, you know, these three daughters, these three beautiful daughters who are named. A lot of times we, we've mentioned that the Bible translation, in King James especially, they don't always give you the meaning of the names, what the names actually. So you get what is, was it Jemima is the, the first uh-huh. daughter? Uh-huh. I, I didn't know. I, I think of Aunt Jemima, Turtle you know, birth. syrup. Yeah. It means dove, you know, so dove, you have cinnamon, the second, and the third, eyeshadow. These are these are Stephen Mitchell's translations. So dove, cinnamon, eyeshadow, representing peace, abundance, and a feminine form of grace. Could be chesed, actually. I meant to look into it, and, mm-hmm. and I forgot. Another commentator looks at it as the turtle dove symbolizing hearing, the cinnamon symbolizing taste, and the antinomy, which is the, the black stuff for the eyeshadow, is symbolizing sight because it goes on the eye. So it's a different way of looking at it. The second quote I wanted to share from Elie Wiesel, also from Knight, reads, Some 10,000 men had come to participate in a solemn service, including the Blockaltesta, the Kapos, all bureaucrats in the service of death. Blessed be the Almighty, the voice of the officiating inmate, had just become audible. At first, I thought it was the wind. Blessed be God's name. Thousands of lips repeated the benediction, bent over like trees in a storm. Blessed be God's name? Why, but why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled. Because he caused tens of thousands of children to burn in his mass graves? Because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days? Because in his great might, he created Auschwitz, Birkenau and Buna, and so many other factories of death? 
How could I say to him, Blessed be thou, almighty master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night, to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces? Praise be thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. And finally, perhaps the most poignant passage of all, so that you, you could really hear in Elie Wiesel in, in that last passage I read, he's just like Job, right? He's cursing God. Why should I, you know, bless your name? He's desperately cynical. Yeah, yeah. The most poignant passage perhaps is this one. I don't remember who's speaking here. This is a dialogue from later in the book. There have been some canons, you know, the front is moving closer to the death camp. There's this sense, you know, somebody's thinking maybe we're going to get out of this alive, that, you know, we're going to be saved. And someone says, don't be deluded. Hitler has made it clear that he will annihilate all Jews before the clock strikes 12. I exploded. Now this is Elie Wiesel. I exploded. Would you care what he said? Would you want us to consider him a prophet? His cold eyes stared at me. At last he said wearily, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He alone has kept his promises, all his promises, to the Jewish people. Hmm. The questions of Job were not answered for Elie Wiesel when he was in that death camp. Right? In your suffering, you have the same questions. In my suffering, I have the same questions. And the, the answer you know, that, the, that the friends give, that Elihu gives, we already covered God's non-answer, just and that that the frame narrative gives just doesn't work right they're insufficient yeah it just doesn't work that way because evil people seem to get along and good people bad things happen to good people right so there are a couple of things to talk about here one is the non-answer of god on the one hand includes the idea that we've shared before in the chinese farmer story we've shared this story haven't we yeah i know i know we've shared it on the contemplation podcast do you want to tell it? Do you, do you want me to tell it? Go for it. So you have this Chinese farmer whose horse runs away and he tells, you know, people, his neighbors, and they say, oh, that's terrible. Your horse ran away. He says, maybe. The next day his horse comes back and brings with it all these wild horses, you know, and they say, wow, now you have all these horses. This is wonderful. And he says, maybe. Then his son tries to break one of the wild horses, gets thrown from the horse and breaks his leg. And the neighbors say, oh, this is terrible that your son has broken his leg. And he says, maybe. And then come the conscriptionists, right? They're, they want to conscript all the able-bodied young men to go to war, to fight and die. And his son doesn't get conscripted because he has a broken leg. And they say, oh, isn't it wonderful? He didn't get conscripted. And he says, maybe. And that's where the story ends, right? The point of the story being that we can't make cause and effect judgment. We don't. The chain of causality is not known to us. It's too large. There, as, as Nietzsche put it in his book, Beyond Good and Evil, which is where God sits as he shows up here in, his, in the experience that Job has, there, there, there are no moral realities. There are only moral judgments. In other words, metaphysically, nothing's wrong. Epistemologically, we can have an experience of, of something being wrong. And that's certainly been my experience with my injured back. It was Job's experience. It was Elie Wiesel's experience. And no one can deny those experiences. I would not deny Elie Wiesel's. I hope no one would deny mine. We all have these questions from time to time. And the simplistic answer isn't the answer. And as a matter of fact, there is no the answer because the question is the wrong question. The question that Job brings to God is, 
Why are you doing this to me? And God is saying, well, he doesn't say I'm not doing this to you, but he says what he does do. And it's pretty awesome. And Job already knew that, but that's just it. That's just God. He just is that he is, right? He said, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. And so that's basically what he's saying in the voice in the whirlwind is I am that I am. The, there are two syllogisms that the friends go through, right? One is something bad happened to you. Bad things don't happen to good people. Therefore, you must be a bad person, right? This yeah. is your fault. What would the other syllogism be? God is just. And so if this has happened, it must be justice or something like that. Yeah. And so that's the friend syllogism. Job's syllogism is God is just, then he cannot punish innocent people. Therefore, and you know, Job gets punished. Therefore, God is unjust. So either, either Job is unjust or God is unjust. It must be one or the other, according to Job and his friends. Job insists on his innocence, and yet he does still yeah. demand God tell him what he did wrong. There's, there does seem to be a little bit of a, it's maybe rhetorical, but there is still sort of the question in Job's mind, maybe I did do something wrong, but he cannot imagine anything he did wrong. He goes through and he explains it and he and he refutes all of the accusations of his friends and we're left with, we can't possibly conclude that Job has done anything wrong either. And so that's why he's asking God to tell him what he did wrong. But it's like a rhetorical ask, right? And I think I think what you were saying about how that's the wrong question, I you know, we say it's the wrong question, but it's the question we always ask. So why do we always ask the wrong question, right? And it's like it's the wrong question because when we are suffering, we're looking for something to alleviate our suffering. And we think that if we understood why we were suffering, we would be able to bear it better or or something like that. And I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that if we if we really understood why we were suffering, that we would somehow be able to bear it better. What I think works better in the situation and talks to the point of it being the wrong question is that answers to the why don't, like I said, they don't really help alleviate suffering. What it is that Job needs he thinks he wants an answer to the why or what he's done wrong. But what it turns out, what really ends up is the word satisfying him or or something. What really ends up concluding the thing is God coming and saying, I hear you. It's not so much that Job now understands why he was suffering. He never does. He never does understand why he suffered. But what he does understand is that God heard him and he has an audience with God. And somehow that is enough for him. Yeah, I would agree with you that Job probably knows he hasn't done anything wrong, but still is willing to ask, okay, maybe I, you know, to, you might think maybe I've done something wrong and ask God. But mostly what I see happening there is, as I said earlier, it's just this legalistic, I have a right for you to tell me what I'm accused of. Yeah. So I can refute it. <laughs> or else you have to take it back, right? Yeah. He's, he's asserting that right. Just like he wants his, his gal, his redeemer, right? His advocate, advocate. from, from among yeah. his family. In addition to Elie Wiesel's memoir that I read from Knight, I think I wanted to mention on the podcast, on this podcast, you know, that there's a lot of literature 
it's because this is such an important question, right? And a lot this, isn't even a long enough word to describe how much literature yeah, there right? is on this. This like, question of, of human suffering, right? It's part, such an important part of the human experience. And so, so many writers have borrowed from, I mentioned Lear already, probably has a debt to Job, you know, from Shakespeare, King Lear. You have everything Kafka wrote as a retelling of Job, not just the trial, all of it. You have, I think, Dostoevsky you were going to mention, Ben. Yeah, I was going to mention Dostoevsky, especially the, the Grand Inquisitor, where he talks about the suffering of children. That's, in a sense, a retelling of Job. Yeah. Then you have you have Goethe's Faust, which is also which is a retelling of of the earlier Doctor Faustus, right? Yeah. Some of the writers, some of the survivors of Holocaust, other than Elie Wiesel, that wrote did address not this question head on always, but things that are always related to it. You know, we talked about Primo Levi. He's a survivor of Holocaust camp, and so he addresses a little bit of this situation. And so anyway, there's others as well. Victor Frankl, we talked, he he looks a little bit more on the concept of free will, but it still is tangential to the Job discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. His his discussion is more stoic. Right. And it's about the like Epictetus, right? What happens, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. Yeah. So there are important questions raised by this poem in this book, questions of human experience right and they're not necessarily answers given i don't think there are any answers given and yet there are i think the the answers come from the experience of reading the poem and i again it has to be read in verse it has to be read out loud get yourself a copy of either stephen mitchell translation or raymond shenlin's translation or robert alter's translation and experience the power of the poetry of the book of job in one sense, the answer is that every human being, in order to really understand what it is to be a human being, wrestles with this question. And so yeah. just the wrestling with the question is meaningful in and of itself. Yes. The message that I got from it, to kind of recap what I was saying earlier, is that it, it's something like the only truly helpful response to human suffering is to be present. There's no argument to explain it. It just demands companionship. There's no suffering so severe, maybe as when somebody suffers alone. So yeah. this doesn't necessarily mean physically alone, but alone in the sense that no one hears them. No one truly cares, right? So Job's friends, they sit with him for seven days, which I don't know that I would sit with my boil-infested friend for seven days. I think this is kind of going to the you know another extreme in the situation. But again, ultimately, they can't suffer with him. They can't stand it either. But when God himself responds, Job feels heard. And his struggle with God is met with validation, in a sense. And that seems to be enough, not to justify or explain it, but just to make it bearable for Job. And the friends could have been more godlike. I mean, you know, if they had if they had only done what they did for the first seven days, then he would have had an Job would have had an experience of God, you see? So where they went wrong is they start mm -hmm. there and then they start saying, well, something, you know, when somebody does 
when something bad happens to somebody, they, they must have done something wrong. Then they say, you must have done something wrong. And then they say, they outright accuse him of all these preposterous things that he hasn't done. And we know, you know, Job knows he hasn't done these things. He defends himself. God knows, or at least could have known if he had consulted his omniscience and then he didn't have to make any bets with any hasatans, you know, that Job hasn't done anything wrong. But again, the syllogism that no one considers is Job was good. Job suffered. Therefore, there is no therefore. Yeah. There is no therefore. Stuff happens. Nothing's wrong. Remember the Chinese farmer story. I imagine in my mind, like you were saying, how the friends might have responded differently, uh, even though they do sit with him for seven days. What if the friends also were there demanding God respond to Job, right? They were there also asking hey, Job needs an answer or a response at least right, to these questions and not assuming they know because they have not experienced anything that Job has experienced. They are making judgments without experience, without authority. We've talked about how, you know, experience is authority. And that's why God, when God comes, he says, you guys are wrong. Job is right. He's the one speaking from experience, he's the one speaking from authority, and he's the one that's going to not understand, but he's the one that's going to get the response. You guys aren't speaking from authority or from experience, and it doesn't matter what things you said are true. They didn't really help. They didn't answer the question. I like that reading, Ben. Another possibility, and again, there's just not one reading to any poem. Look, all poems have a range of interpretation. They can't mean anything. Right, because there are constraints, but they also don't just mean one thing. Right? There, there are certain things that the poem s- says that have to be, right? that give constraints, but there's room for interpretation. This is what we, we talk about when we talk about mourning with those that mourn. It, within our covenants, we make that covenant, and n- nowhere do we make a covenant to reprove someone who's suffering. Right. Not only that, but we were taught not to by Jesus. Yeah. To heap upon them more persecutions. I, I think Alma five as well. You know, he, he he talks about how we look at ourselves. Do we do we judge and and heap even more persecutions upon those who are suffering? Do we turn them away? Well, Ben, we've barely scratched the surface of we really this, have <laughs> of what is arguably the greatest poem from the ancient world. Again, I love the Gilgamesh. I do love Job, and the more you know, the more time I spend with it, the more I love it. It may be that I've read Gilgamesh more than Job. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> ben, it's been great to be back with you. Yeah, I, I was glad this happened. Have a great week. Thanks to our editors and everyone who works on the team to make this podcast happen. Well, we want to say thanks so much to our editor, Kyle Swingle, that has really been helping out with these. He, Kyle got to record with me a couple weeks ago. And that episode is already released as of our recording here, Christopher. And also say thanks to all the others that have helped out and participated and donated as well. We've had people donating and those donations have been able to help us cover some of the costs of like the website and and podcast platform, stuff like that. So that's been helpful. Thanks, guys. And we're still looking for an editor. If you know how to edit or would like to learn how to edit, reach out to us. Yes, please. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I am Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. 